Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Kath. Uh, before we get started, uh, I just wanted to do like a quick check-in with you. We are recording this on May 29th, uh, right before we release this next episode. Uh, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, I guess I'm, I'm feeling pretty exhausted. Yeah. 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 I hear that. Um, I stayed up until 2.30 in the morning last night, scrolling on Twitter, um, following the protests happening in Minnesota and around the country mm-hmm. right now because of the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and Tony McDade. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, you know, I know it can feel very bleak right now. The only thing I know to do, to quote Mr. Rogers, um, is to look for the helpers. Mm. So what's giving me hope right now is reading uh, and looking into how Asian American communities can be supportive and not participate in anti-blackness. That is the main thing I'm thinking about. Um, What about you? I guess I'm also feeling a little helpless right now. But I do want to say to our black and brown listeners that we are here for you. And we hope this show is a source of joy and comfort. And speaking of which, the episode you're about to hear was recorded a couple weeks ago. It's conversations with some brilliant and very funny writers. So we hope you enjoy it. From WNYC Studios, you're listening to Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. Um, I said the dumbest thing the other day. What did you say? Tell me. Okay. So this was a couple of weekends ago, uh, and, you know, I'm just at my house like I should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realize there's, like, no TV series that I'm super feeling. Like, yes, there's a bunch of good stuff. I just don't feel like watching any of it. Uh-huh. So you know what I did, Kathy? I picked up a freaking book. You did what now? <laughs> I know, revolutionary. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, I did a thing I haven't done in a really long time, which is, like, I just plopped down in a chair and I read a whole book in one sitting. I don't think I've ever done that before. Um, it was a commitment. By the way, if you're curious, it was Lulu Miller's book, Why Fish Don't Exist. Super great read. You should definitely buy it. Um, but you know what my dumbass says as soon as I finish that book? I said out loud, oh, reading a book is just like binge watching a TV show. That's definitely, (laughs) that's a thing you said. I know, I know. (laughs) The point of my stupidity is reading is such a gift right now. And I am so hungry for books that will, you know, make me think, make me feel, distract me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I hear that. So last episode, we had that amazing conversation with author Carmen Maria Machado. So I think we should just keep this train going. We're going to hear from so many amazing writers today, all with books that are worth your time. I am so excited because up first is Samantha Irby, one of the funniest writers out there, and she recently published her latest book called Wow, No Thank You. It's her third book of essays, and it's about a whole new chapter in Sam's life. She's 40 now and recently got married and moved from Chicago to Kalamazoo, Michigan to be with her wife. So these days, she's trying to make friends as a grown adult in a new town, and she's also a new stepmom to her partner's teenage kids. 
Her careers changed pretty dramatically too. She went from writing a blog hoping to get guys to notice her to writing for TV shows like Shrill and Work in Progress. And I literally laughed out loud reading this book. Yeah, and she just talks about her life with such a brutal honesty and in this hilarious way that's self-deprecating, but also manages to inspire hope in me in this weird way. Like, she's so honest about her flaws and shortcomings that it makes me feel better about myself and my life. Same. I just love how real and relatable she is. So relatable that she, just like us, has avoided going outside during this quarantine at all costs. I don't know that I have felt outside air (laughs) in, I mean, maybe like three weeks. I haven't even, like, stepped out to get the mail. (laughs) I truly (laughs) Well, I think what you're describing is what Kathy and I have sometimes described as, like, we are indoor gays. Uh, That's, like, our type. (laughs) Yes. And we are underrepresented in popular culture, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. We could have an indoor gay pride, but no one would show up. Oh, wow. Yeah, you just, everybody tunes their TVs to the Golden Girls at the same time yeah. during indoor pride. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. You wave your like, rainbow flag out of the window and eat cheesecake and watch <laughs> the Golden Girls. I'm curious, how did you come up with the title, um, Wow, No Thank You? I think I wanted to call this like, is this hell? Like, am I dead and is this hell? Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I wanted to- <laughs> I pitched the book, Am I Dead and Is This Hell? And they're like, (laughs) cute, we'll talk about the title when you've turned everything in, right? (laughs) So I turn in all the stuff, late, of course, and then we start talking about what to call it. And I, both times, was like, oh, it has a title. Remember how I told you it's called Am I Dead and Is This Hell? Um, And they're like, "Mm, sweetie, no. So my editor went through, she's like, how about I go through the book and I'll pull out phrases that sound like they could be good titles. Mm. I can't remember exactly where I said it, but at some point I say, wow, sir, no thank you. Mm. (laughs) And she had that phrase in there and I was like, oh, that one. That's perfect. And then I was like, let's take out the sir because I don't want to alienate any sirs who might want to buy this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, okay, agreed. But it really does encapsulate my approach to many things. <laughs> like it felt like it felt very true. To both me and the collection. So I was I was really happy with it. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> so you are now a step-parent to two kids. Um, and you write about your parenting style uh, using the term, quote, detachment parenting. Um, <laughs> how, how would you describe what detachment parenting is? It is walking out of the room the minute they walk into it. While also paying for everything they have. <laughs> no, for real. Oh, it truly is... is like, do not ask. I, you have two parents who love you. They take great care of you. They will decide like what vaccinations you need to get. All of it. Like, don't ask me any life advice. 
I'm here to like sign into violent movies you want to watch. I'm here to like give you the password for that stuff and also pay to keep the internet on, but you cannot come to me about any serious life choices (laughs) because it cannot be my fault. Whatever happens to it's like my worst nightmare for these kids who are great. They're sweet, smart, nice, but like 10 years from now for them to be like, so this thing you said to me in 2018 (laughs) destroyed my entire future. (laughs) So I just, whenever either of them has like a serious look on their face or they like have a genuine question that's not like, you know, what snacks to get at Costco, I just am like, I leave the room. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, uh uh-uh, no. I'm the life advice, no way. (laughs) I just go get in the car and drive away. (laughs) I'm like, is your mom still alive? Go ask her. Has has that actually happened? Has one of the kids come up to you and like, I need advice about this? So they have not asked for advice. So this is the thing I kind of like, but is dangerous. I sometimes get mm. the because I'm I'm not a regular mom, I'm the cool mom. Um I <laughs> sometimes get the fire hose of child gossip, which trust me, not as exciting as it sounds. It's truly <laughs> like she sat over here and then I sat over there and then I saw on Snapchat, you know, it's like the most boring thing you've ever heard in your life, but it is like interesting to watch them like get all worked up so sometimes I get the like the gossip but then it's <laughs> I am an adult so I do like hear it through the prism of like is this <laughs> bullying do I have to like go find another capable adult and tell them this story <laughs> so now I'm just like I, I just avoid it altogether I'm like oh you're having a fight with your friend Okay, cool. Your mom is upstairs. Come back down and talk to me when you want to watch Survivor. And then they, they go talk to their mom. Yeah. That's so this sort funny. Of, this gets at a thing that I also love about your writing. Uh, I'm thinking about your essay in The Cut about marriage and sort of rethinking what commitment means. Um, oh, yeah. And it was sort of about, like, how, you know, commitment is not the rom-com we all imagine it being. Like, there's something more comfortable and, and mm-hmm. mundane about it to sink into. And and you talking about being a stepmom, you know, that there's something uh, that you're challenging in this idea of, like, what a stepmom has to be. Um, yeah. And, and so I'm wondering, like, I read in your writing a lot sort of, like, this challenging of heteronormative ideas. Um, mm-hmm. And... Obviously, that's just something you're writing out because that is your experience. But is there also something about it that you enjoy, like, leaning into challenging those those sort of ideas we have about what a person should be? The pressure to be exceptional when you are in any marginalized community is intense, right? Mm. Like, you got to be, like, the best gay and you got to be the best that gay mom to be an example to all mm-hmm. the people who say that you shouldn't be allowed to be a black gay mom. And I feel like just kind of like the way that I've lived and chronicled that life is just an example that like 
you don't have to be revolutionary. It's not perfect. It's not great. It wasn't planned. You know what I mean? I certainly didn't like set out to meet a kombucha lady who has a couple of kids and moved to the country with her. <laughs> Wait, did you just did you just say kombucha lady? <laughs> yes. She used to make her own kombucha and I was like, not in my house. That that's Gobi. You get that out of it. That has to go. She still does like she has a garden and she cans lots of vegetables and stuff and I actively avoid everything having to do with that. But um <laughs> but like <laughs> I don't even remember what I was saying. Just I think it is since I can be a person who is like a little public and writes about myself, I think it's like good for the culture just to see that happening and seeing that it works and that it's not mm-hmm. a big revolutionary deal. This is just a normal life. Well, okay. So I'm curious then, like you're talking about sort of being on the other side of these big changes in your life and realizing that just sort of being the best you can is what life is made of. If you were to go back to your 20-year-old self or your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give to those versions of you? Oh, my God. Um, Let's see. 20-year-old me, I would say to not worry so much about um, – catching up romantically right like I think I spent like a Mm. lot of my late teens early 20s feeling like I hadn't dated enough and I hadn't kissed enough people and that's probably true there weren't many but I felt so uh, like desperate and ashamed about it I thought everyone was passing me by Mm. in that way and I would say don't worry about it you'll catch up Um, (laughs) and at 30, I would say, don't let anyone, or it's not even people who put pressure on you. It's putting pressure on yourself based on what you think other people are doing. And that is a thing I actively try not to do every day. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm going to listen to that advice right now. You (laughs) have to. In this moment. So to wrap things up, um, we we like to sometimes joke about the things, the weird things or funny things or whatever things out there that you would want like sort of elevated into the queer canon. Um, and they've spanned, you know, Tegan and Sarah or Jigglypuff. Uh, so we're kind of curious, what would you want to put into the queer canon? Oh, my God. Well overalls yes oh i love that i am i'm bordering on purchasing my third pair and i do not need a third pair (laughs) yes those are the gayest they are canon (laughs) love it yeah thank you so much for making time to talk to us so much of course yeah this was so much fun Coming up, a whole gaggle of queer authors give us a rundown of their new books, and we talk to writer Brandon Taylor about being a queer Black scientist and why he quit. Nancy will be right back. 
And we're back. We have been talking about all things books and Kath, even though this current moment is giving me tons of time to read. Mm -hmm. I also just got to point out that self-isolation and travel restrictions robbed so many writers of book tours where they would normally be able to reach new audiences with their work. Mm -hmm. And obviously, staying at home, it's the right thing to do. But, you know, there's got to be something we can do to help some of these queer authors get the word out about their beautiful books. Way ahead of you, Tobin, we made a couple calls and asked some folks to tell us all about their books, what they're about, why we should read them, and they also gave us a little taste of what we can expect. Hit it! My name is Matt Artile. My pronouns are he, him, and I'm currently in my apartment in Brooklyn. The title of my book is The Groom Will Keep His Name. After all... Heavy is the head that wears the crown of dairy queendom. My book is a collection of essays, and each one dismantles a myth, a fable, story that I've told myself about what it means to be a queer Filipino immigrant in America searching for belonging. And freed of that burden, I've gotten better at discerning the difference, whether a man might fit nicely into my life, or if he's just a white guy with a beard. A friend said reading the book was like having good sex, so the book is one safe option you have under quarantine, approved by the World Health Organization. Hey there, it's Rachel Matlow in Toronto. My pronouns are she, her, or they, them, or sir, that's good too. My book is called Dead Mom Walking, a memoir of miracle cures and other disasters. I waited expectantly for access to a higher realm, and maybe some insight into my mom's magical thinking. Suddenly, my face felt wet. I opened my eyes. The shaman was standing over me, flicking Peruvian water on my head, chanting, It's a dark comedy about how my wonderful, feminist, new-agey mom tried to cure herself of cancer with herbs, cannabis oil, and magic. Against my wishes. Spoiler, unsuccessfully. My name is Meredith Tolusin. My pronouns are she, her, they, and them. I learned about how difficult it was to grow up smart, but for the world to see you as valuable only if you look beautiful. I am currently in Berryville, New York. I learned about trying to live up to an ideal of attractiveness, but being beset with obstacles as soon as you approached it. And the title of my memoir is Fairest. How the prettier you are, the less you're taken seriously. And I hope your wonderfully queer Nancy readers will like my book. My name is Alok. I use they, them pronouns, and I'm a writer and performance artist based out of New York City. I have a book called Beyond the Gender Binary coming out in June. We deserve more options. This false choice of boy or girl, man or woman, male or female is not natural. It is political. The real crisis is not that gender non-conforming people exist, it's that we have been taught to believe in only two genders in the first place. It's a really accessible and beautiful book that teaches people how moving beyond a world that divides billions of people into one of two categories is actually going to help everyone. Hey everyone, my name is Kaysen Callender. I use they, them pronouns and sometimes he, him pronouns. I'm based in Philly, and my book is called Felix Ever After. Felix Ever After is about 17-year-old Felix Love, who has never been in love. And yes, he's aware of the irony. 
He worries that he isn't loved and accepted because he's quote unquote one marginalization too many as a black, queer, and trans guy. It could have been easy to say that I was hurt because I'm trans, because someone singled me out for my identity, but there's something weird about that, something off about suggesting that my identity is the thing that brought me any sort of pain. It's the opposite. Being trans brings me love. Felix Ever After is funny, has a roller coaster romance, and above all else, I hope that it's affirming and validating to my trans and non binary family. That was Matt Ortile, Rachel Matlow, Meredith Toulousen, Alok Vade Menon, and Kaysen Callender. We put links to all of their books on our website, so go check them out. All right, next up, we're going to talk to Brandon Taylor. His debut novel is called Real Life, and it came out in February. Yeah, it's a story about a queer Black scientist named Wallace who grew up in the South and wound up studying in a predominantly white science lab. And he's trying to navigate what exactly is real life in that space. Which is interesting because Brandon is, in fact, a queer Black former biochemist from a small town in Alabama. So I was always helping my grandpa with farm chores, like growing things and looking after the chickens and stuff. And so even as a kid, I was always keeping these really ridiculous little notebooks about, you know, this chicken and that chicken had eggs and now the babies look like this. Aww. I was doing all these like weird sort of Mendelian <laughs> genetics. That's so cute. I, I was such <laughs> a little nerd. <laughs> Have you found your like youth notebooks full of that information that you collected? My dad and I were having a phone call a couple years ago, and he's like, I found your old school notebooks. Like, you wrote all of these really dark stories about little <laughs> boys whose, whose mothers poisoned them with Clorox. And I also found all these scribbles, you know, where you were, like, playing teacher or something, all these math equations. <laughs> and so they, they exist somewhere still they in exist. Alabama, yeah. <laughs> Before you wrote your novel, you were actually on your way to finishing a doctorate in biochemistry, which you decided to not complete. And I'm wondering, like, what were the experiences that you had that kind of ultimately pushed you to leave the field? I was in a PhD program and I was like deep in, I think I was fourth or fifth year. I was, you know, two steps from starting my dissertation. I kept having all these weird experiences that left me like really tired and I'd go home and talk to my roommate who was also queer and black and from Alabama. And I'd be like, yeah, this is like really getting to me. I don't know what's going on. And he'd be like, Brandon, that's racism. And I'd go, oh, (laughs) oh, I see. You know, there are a few things that that sort of pushed me to the breaking point. And one was that in my last year of graduate school, I had this one um, lab mate who would constantly like undercut me and undermine me and would say these really ridiculous things that were just factually not true. And I and I felt like every day I was having to like relitigate my right to exist in that space. Mm. Um, and and I guess I just realized, oh, I it doesn't have to be this. Like I can make a different choice about what my life is like. I I can leave. What did it feel like to finally leave it behind? Frankly, it was like really devastating and really difficult because from a very early age, I was really committed to a life of science. And like at the age of, you know, 27, I guess I was 27, 28, when it's like, oh, I'm going to have to leave this because 
it's either I continue on down this path and I get into even more difficult spaces that are even harder to navigate, or I choose a different way to live that means throwing away a lot of what I knew about myself, you know, away. And do I pick self-preservation and honoring my dignity as a person, or do I pick this version of myself that I that I've always seen as being the sort of end goal for me, but which is ultimately like a toxic, you know, situation. What got you interested in this possibility of being a writer? What attracted you to that idea? Mm, you know, I mean, so I was a very lonely kid. Um, and so as a kid, I was always sort of writing little stories and making things up. But I never really saw myself as like a writer because I never really saw myself as a reader. I thought that books were this thing from the before time and that all authors were dead. You know, I don't think I read a living writer until um, until college or something like that. And and so I, I never thought that a writer was like a thing that I could be um, until I took a creative writing class in, in college and it's one of those weird moments where I was having a really hard time with a story. And so my friends took me to Books A Million to buy a book because that was their strategy for me. If I was ever sad, they just fling me in the general direction of books. <laughs> and so we went to the gay section and there was no gay section. And so I went to the front uh, clerk and I was like, do you have this book? And it was like a gay romance book or something. And the clerk was like, we don't sell that. We're a family store. Um, And it just made me so mad. (laughs) It made me furious. And so my friends took me home because they were like, we failed this mission to cheer him up with books. But I sat down at my desk and I wrote a short story in like one day. (laughs) Like I was like, I'm going to fix their wagon. I'm going to write stories about gay people and that'll that'll show them. So uh, you decided to leave your PhD program because you realized you connected with writing more, and that's like a huge step. Um, Do you remember a moment that felt symbolic of, wow, I've really left this thing behind, or I really am leaving this thing behind? Like, did you set a lab coat on fire? I'm I'm joking, but like... (laughs) Just was there was there something that felt like wow I'm really doing this I'm 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 leaving this thing. Like in the fall of 2016, I sent off one MFA application to the Ira Writers Workshop, and I was like, if I get in, I'll leave science, and if I don't get in, I'll just stay. I sort of decided like that would be the coin toss of destiny. Um, a month into sort of finally catching up on my experiments, I find out I got into Iowa. And so then I was like, oh no, what do I do? Um, that That is the famously hard to get into uh, Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, we were curious, you know, you described your PhD program and sort of the microaggressions and like overt aggressions that went on there. Um, but at the same time, like MFA programs are notoriously sort of white and cis and how they favor people and the environments. Right. Was there a little bit of that carryover when you went into this program, like some of the same bullshit? I didn't experience the same kinds of microaggressions that I experienced um, in my science program. But that said, like I, you know, I didn't, but I'm sure there were things happening that I wasn't aware of because I spent a lot of time alone, frankly. Mm. I never felt like, oh, they're not into this because I'm writing stories about Black people. It just felt like, oh, they're not into like my austere domestic realism or my personality. So the main character of your novel, Real Life, is this guy, Wallace, who is also a Black queer scientist. And there are definitely some overlaps between your experience and his. And I guess we were curious, just like, 
what went into the decision to write this as a novel as opposed to, like, say, a memoir? It never occurred to me to write it as a memoir. And part of that is like, I find nonfiction deeply painful in a way that I don't find fiction. (laughs) Writing fiction to me, I'm not saying it's like, ooh, I'm on easy street, but I just find it so much easier than writing nonfiction. Mm. I actually didn't want to write a novel. I consider myself a short story writer. Um, But I had this agent at the time who kept asking me how my novel was going. Every time I was like, no, 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 I'm not writing a novel. I'm a short story writer. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, how's (laughs) it going? You know? And so I decided I was going to just like sit down and write a novel so that he would get off my back. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I never thought it would see the light of day. And so then I was like, okay, if I'm going to write this novel so I can write short stories... I have to pick something that I can finish. I need to get it done and get out, get it out of my hair so I can get on with my life. <laughs> um, I'm curious because, you know, you are known for writing these shorter nonfiction essays that often get very personal. Mm. Um, what do you find are the challenges of each now that you've written long-form fiction and also, you know, these short-form nonfiction pieces? So anytime I I set out to write nonfiction, it feels like an excruciating exercise in trying to take the thing you hold most dear and treat it with the most brutality you can muster. Like treat Mm. the things you believe in most with the greatest scrutiny and uncertainty. Like in an essay, when you really take apart an idea, you know, like when you really break something down and you see what's inside of it, that does really appeal to me, which is perhaps why I keep doing it despite all the pain it causes. <laughs> Someone asked me, like, what's the one word that you hope gets applied to your writing? And I'm like, lucid. Like, I love things that are clear and mm. I love things that where you can feel the writer thinking through a thing and not just like pretending to think, because I think there's some nonfiction on the internet these days that feels like a person making gestures toward thought or pretending to think or sort of having an aesthetic of a person who once had a thought, but like they aren't (laughs) actually thinking. Um, I love the way you put things. Yeah, that (laughs) description is, I'm wow, I'm going to think about that for days. (laughs) So question, are you still able to do sciencey things? Like, are you still using that part of your brain sometimes? Oh my God. I was at home visiting and my grandma kept complaining about how the sink was just like full of grease and it was like really backed up and they couldn't do anything about it. And I was like, well, just like do an acid-base reaction. That's all you have to do. The heat will dissolve all the grease and stuff. And they're like, a what now? And so, you know, I was like, step step aside. And so I, I like mix up some some baking soda, then pour some hot vinegar down, and then it all just starts gurgling and bubbling, and everyone's like, what witchcraft is this? Oh, my God. <laughs> you totally had your, like, Elle Woods moment where she gets the dog back for Paulette, and she's like, oh, my God, this is law. This is what law yeah. is. <laughs> oh, no, totally. I have those weird moments all the time where a friend of mine will be like, oh, I wonder how this like weird abstract scientific thing works. And I'll turn to them and I'll be like, well, actually carbohydrates. And, mm. and, they'll, and they'll be like, how do you know that? And I'll be like, I don't really know. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, is there a book by a queer author besides your own that you love and recommend? Oh, I mean, there are so many. Um, yeah, literally, I'm like, there are books by straight people. Oh my goodness! Um, you know, I, 
my favorite novelist, Andre Asimov's Call Me By Your Name. And I know that's mm. like a controversial choice for many people. But like I, when I read that novel 18 years old, it changed my understanding of the kind of life that was possible for me. I was like, oh, it's possible to exist in the world as a queer person. Like mm. that book showed me that like my life could be interesting and could be a worthy subject of art. So like that book is always like a major touchstone for me. Mm-hmm. And speaking of like messy tomes, the book I think about maybe the most is James Baldwin's Another Country, which is just one of these huge sprawling social novels in which everyone's everyone's like a little queer at least. Like there are no like fully straight people in that book. And it's a novel about race and class and and gender and sexuality and what it means to live in this country. (laughs) You know, like Mm -hmm. a very complicated book on, I think, on America. It's a really brilliant book. So we sometimes like to add dumb things into the queer canon. If you were to nominate a very not serious thing into like queer culture, the queer canon, what do you think we can claim? Oh, (laughs) that's amazing. Um, I think Fleet Foxes are absolutely a queer construct. The band Fleet Foxes. Wait, what? So the Fleet Foxes are like, they're like a band of like white men from Seattle. Right. But I have this running Twitter theory where essentially every song about like by Fleet Foxes is like essential about cruising and like feeling sad about a man who doesn't love you back. Like they have this song, they have literally a song called Mykonos, which is a gay destination. Um, There's a song that opens, my brother, where do you intend to go tonight? I heard you miss your connecting flight to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And it's like, well, clearly he's like, do you want to come over? Can you host? In my opinion. (laughs) I I love this answer. I love it so much. This has been amazing. Brandon, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. This was such a blast. If you have a book that you love, share it with us in our Friends of Nancy Facebook group. Brother, you don't need to turn me away. Hey folks, one last thing before we go. If you haven't heard, unfortunately, Nancy was not renewed for another season at WNYC. It's a sad time for us at Team Nancy, but I don't know about you, Kathy. I mostly just feel really fucking proud of what we did here. Oh my god, yes. We got to tell so many stories that we really believed in. We got to work together. It's just been such a great time. Mm -hmm. And I think my big thing, and I know this is the same for you, uh, we are so, so thankful for you, our Nancy listeners. You have shown up for us in so many ways. I don't think we can ever thank you enough. Truly, truly. Um, I also just want to say, don't be too worried for us. Kathy and I will be joining the staff at Radiolab in July, so look out for our voices over there. But as for Nancy, our last episode will drop June 29th, and we'll maybe put a few extras in the feed before then. So please keep listening. Uh, We're going to go out with a party. All right, credits. Producers. Zakia Gibbons and B.A. Parker. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Sarah Geis. Executive producer. Susie Lechtenberg. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. <laughs>